Welcome to Pastor Potluck. I'm Court Green. And I'm Peter Constantian. And we are back after, has it been one week or two weeks? We took Thanksgiving week off, yeah. right? But we're back. And we're back. Uh, I went hunting, you went to some portion of your family somewhere. Mm-hmm. Colorado. Colorado. And did you drive? No, we flew. You're smart. Well. It's a long, boring drive. Traffic in Atlanta to the Atlanta airport was terrible. Okay. Thanksgiving's a terrible time to travel. Yeah. But we all do it. Or a lot of us do it. But that's why it's so terrible, because enough of us do it. And uh, we were relatively unscathed. We did make both of our flights. Good. There was one delay, but it wasn't too bad. Yeah. Where'd you have to layover? No layover. Direct Good. flight on Frontier. So Good. that was that was a calculation, because I figured when you have a layover, that multiplies the chances of something going wrong. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, I mean... In normal travel, it doesn't matter. But on Thanksgiving, th- around those holidays, you're not going to be able to find another flight, or they're not going to find you another flight. So that's probably smart. Mm-hmm. How was your Thanksgiving itself? Amazing, delicious. Good. I like. I'm. I'm a. I'm a cheap date on Thanksgiving. I like that that dish where you take frozen hash browns and you thaw them out a little bit, and you mix it up with sour cream and cheese, and you bake that, and then you put some. Uh, Cornflakes that you've toasted so in butter brown on top of it. Yeah, cheese. Yeah. I call it cheesy potato bake, but maybe that's that. I think it's the same thing. Yeah, I think it's just two different names for the same thing, like uh, sweet potatoes and yams. Yeah. yeah, where they got yams, I don't know. But well, yam is actually oh God, a different. Of course, you know, <laughs> is a different plant, and uh, they grow yams in in, in lots lot, lot, lots of places in Africa. Grow yams. The leaf of a of a yam plant actually looks a lot like an elephant ear plant, mm-hmm. whereas sweet potatoes do not look like that. So it's a different plant, but the it's but in still, the southeast, if you hear yams, you're usually hearing about sweet, sweet potatoes. potatoes. Yeah. yeah, it's still a tuber. Okay. So, and the the flavor is comparable. You didn't ask, but uh, since we're talking about our favorite Thanksgiving dishes, I'm not huge on turkey. On Thanksgiving, I like it after it's been in the refrigerator for a couple days. It mm. gets all moist. And Turkey stuff. sandwich. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I do like ham, and my, my favorite is the pies. Mm. What pies? Well, I generally just don't eat a lot of food and take a sampling, and I'm not I'm not a huge dessert guy, but I like pecan pie or pecan, but pecan. Um, pumpkin pie is okay, but there's they call it millionaire pie. It's like you know, mostly whipped cream. And um, pineapples and anyway, that's, that's, I have not had millionaire pie. That's my jam on Thanksgiving. But I did have uh, pumpkin pie, pecan pie, and French silk pie. So on that note, I'll mention to our listeners: Peter's dieting. Uh, <laughs> not on Thanksgiving. Yeah. Thanksgiving is a big cheat day. So that's that's what I do. Like I I don't eat breakfast. I just go hunting instead. So I don't think about how hungry I am. Yeah. And I don't eat much of the actual Thanksgiving food. Mm. No breads. Because <laughs> that's where your calories are. So that I can have pie. Uh-huh. And then you oh, You're oh on the gosh. pie so, diet. But they, they, <laughs> sl- they slipped one in on me. Actually, they've done this before, but we alternate years, so I forgot. There's a Who's family. They? they, Christy's side of, the, of our family. Uh-huh. There's a, a family where the husband in that family went to college with my father-in-law, like back in the 70s. And his name's Sylvester Z, and he's he's an American citizen, but he's originally from China. 
and his wife Didi is also from China. I think they met here. I'm not sure. Anyway, they bring Chinese food, mm. and I had forgotten about it. So I was just like, "Well, forget my diet." Yeah. And I piled on the uh, sesame chicken and pork lo mein, and it was delicious. Yeah. And then when I how can you say no to lo mein? I mean, well, obviously I don't. No. And they sent a bunch home with me, so I ran out of it two days ago. Anyway, so um, I just you know the rest of the week I made up for it. When I got home, I was shocked. I weighed the exact same as I left did before I leave. Well, our bodies have a way of maintaining, you know, unless we really push the limits. Yeah. yeah. Our our uh, what is it the uh, set point theory? Maybe that's it. That, sure. Where where there's like a, a few pounds one way or the other is your body's natural set point. Yeah. Yeah, that's it, 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 in terms of diet and weight loss. That's what. Yeah, exactly. That. That's what I was going for. Uh, what it, I was looking for the word for uh, the body's equilibrium ability to digest food that in, it fluctuates our body temperature. I forgot what that's called. Metabolism. Metabolism. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I think I tend to run hot because I'm usually eating more that more calories than my set point requires. Mm-hmm. And so and your body's doing stuff with it. Yeah, my body's just burning it off, and and when you when you're actually going to diet, you've got to cut significant significant be, the significantly below that mm-hmm. in order to uh, eventually get your body to readjust to a lower set point. You're trying to trick it, your body, into thinking that you're starving even though you're not, so that it'll go in and start using the reserves you've built up, which is how we get fat. That yeah, that's one way of putting it. But uh, that you know, there's some talk about you know how that's not actually good because then once you do start eating again, you if start. that's happen happening, then a body that's uh, expecting to be in starvation is just going to put all that into fat reserves. And so. that's what creates yo-yo dieting. But this yeah. is not a dieting episode, <laughs> although we are. We were entering, talking about Thanksgiving. It's yeah. a natural outflow. We are entering a season of eating. But as uh, you have pointed out, or maybe others have pointed out as well, maybe some people know, Advent is also a season of fasting. Yes, uh, it's supposed to be. Not as severe, I've told my congregation, as we would expect during Lent. Mm-hmm. But there is a aspect of the season of Advent, which is a season of waiting, in which we anticipate what we remember the coming of Christ as a child, and we anticipate the coming of Christ as the king and lord of all and we try to prepare ourselves to get ready and part of that is deciding do we really need everything that we have come to depend on so i think we're going to talk about that today as we uh, look at isaiah and that's the topic of our conversation today we're getting into uh Advent, and you've written an excellent devotional. We both preached on this topic, so we we'll, well. I'm preach. going to Sunday, okay. And you already have. So we, we being our little group of ministers, had decided that we were going to do an Advent devotional, and I signed up to do the first one, and I did. As and a responsible it, member yeah, of the lectionary group, I, I just do everything early because <laughs> otherwise it slips up on me and I'm pulling my hair out. But so I did it right away, like the next day. Yeah. And no one else did. So we're not actually doing that this year, but we're going to use this because we've done it. Yeah. So, 
Uh, well, the, that's probably why I don't have any hair anymore. Oh, well, I'm pulling you it out some. because of you some well, deadlines. Ezra likes to pull my beard out. That's fun. But you know, there's scriptures about pulling beards out, but it's usually related to grief or well, and also the wasn't there something about that during the crucifixion, or if I just heard that somewhere else, maybe it may not be scriptural. Anyway, so where is it in Isaiah, chapter two? I have it in front of me, but I don't have the call letters. I believe it's chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Okay. Why don't you read it? I will. The word that Isaiah, son of Amoz, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be raised above the hills. All the nations shall stream to it. So streaming is not new. Many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth instruction and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall arbitrate for many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. And if I quoted the whole thing, that ends the reading. If not, there's more. That ends the reading. Okay. That is the whole thing. And uh, this passage, I think, sets up Advent really well because it has an anticipatory tone to it. In your devotional, in your reflection, you made a point of emphasizing that with the opening line, in the days to come. And I wonder what Advent means to you in terms of being a season of anticipation. Well, Advent means coming according to something I read. Mm Mm-hmm. And so if you're thinking about coming, you have the implied knowledge that you've not arrived. Mm-hmm. You've not arrived if you're the one going, or the object hasn't arrived, that is coming. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's a point A, there's a point B, and you're somewhere in the, in the middle. And so with the not yet arrival of something, anticipation is built in. And that's, that's the beauty of Advent, and also Lent, for that matter. The beauty of Advent is that there's there should be an anticipation. There should be. It, think about, uh, in my recent past, anticipating Ezra being born. Mm. I had no experience with this kid. I experienced with a kid, but not this kid. I didn't know what he was going to look like. I didn't know if he was going to have the right number of whatever we i mean we're, we were does. old so we had to do yeah. uh anatomical scans but you don't know beyond surface level you know what's going on you don't know what surprises are in store that's all a mystery and there's something beautiful and powerful in mystery and that's all built in in that phrase in days to come and so in the devotion, we're not going to read it word for word, but in the, I, I kind of keyed off on that phrase. Because in days to come could mean anything. Mm-hmm. It could be something dreadful, but we hope that it's something wonderful. 
Yeah. Or if it is something dreadful, that there's something wonderful that comes out of it. Right. It until you've arrived, you everything's up in the air. You don't yeah. know. Yeah. And and there's hope in that. And for people like me that like to plan and like to know and like to work with known factors and our colleague Brandon is the same way as I am on that. He, he's he's a planner. He likes to know things, but um, and so we talk about that a lot. How much mystery drives us crazy, mm. but also there's a lot of beauty in mystery, and and there's this whole way of understanding God in the mystery that Advent brings, because God is nothing if not mysterious. Mm. Now, someone could like grab that short soundbite of me saying God is nothing and ruined me. Uh, but God is nothing if not mysterious, and that's on purpose. Right. Like, we don't get to know everything. And, and God is also nothing if not good. And Well, thank God for that. Right. Yeah. And so I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think a lot of us struggle with mystery, especially about the future, because we are people who have experienced... Uh, not good things and so we all have this inclination to try to minimize the amount of mystery in our future we want to plan yes we, we want to avoid circumstances which we will be caught off guard we don't think of it as minimizing mystery we think of it as creating security yes but what mystery shows us is that security is a myth yes because anything can happen uh, think about most of our lives and our financial situations. We're a car wreck or a heart attack away from being broke. Mm -hmm. And I think for most of us, we kind of know that. And we, we, in faith, we, we live the best we can. But there are so many that look down on others and say, well, they're just not as hard of a worker as I am. Because mm -hmm. if, if they were, they'd have better financial situations. Mm -hmm. Without examining these things, it could easily happen to you that may have happened to them. And so just in that idea of mystery, there's so many other lessons. For instance, don't judge others because it's a mystery what they've been through that got them to that point. And so just like the, word, the power of the phrase, I don't know, we have it in a more destiny-wrapped kind of way with the phrase in days to come. Because mm -hmm. in days to come, we don't know. Correct. And I think Advent gives, gives us an opportunity as Christians to grow more comfortable with the mystery and with the unknown possibilities and to grow in trust of the God who we know to be good. That even if we don't know really the full picture of what's coming, that we have someone who we can trust. Isaiah, well, God through Isaiah, kind of gives us a picture. It's not well defined because mm -hmm. of mystery and such. But we don't have a time stamp on it. It's just sometime in the future. But we do get this hoped for vision uh, that we can collectively hopefully see as what we call in ethics class in seminary, the good life. Hmm. Um, and in it, there's the other phrase I keyed off on. And I'm going to use it to segue into a discussion that we have not had, so you're completely unprepared for at this point. Throw it at me. 
so it's a famous statement that's quoted often. Uh, I'm going to actually go to the judging part and then get there. He shall judge between the nations and shall arbitrate for many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. And we think about that last phrase. Now, how you get there is you don't need swords and spears if military might no longer solve conflict. So you get there by turning over your will to God's, and we don't want to do that. But we do like to think of a world in which there will be no need for weapons. Hmm. Which takes my mind to the late 90s, early 2000s. I don't know. I want to say it was late 90s. Romeo and Juliet Mm -hmm. with the blonde dude and Claire Danes. Is the Romeo in the park or whatever the the one where they sort of modernized modernized it? Well, they had a 1911, mm-hmm. which is a, a handgun, mm-hmm. and on the side of it, it said "Sword," mm-hmm. like like that was the gun comp- gun manufacturing company, mm-hmm. and and it, that just drove home the point that you know the modern version of swords and spears mm-hmm. you're talking about. In fact. What is the missile system, the anti-tank missile system that everyone was talking about us sending to Ukraine? What is it called? HIMAR? Javelin. Oh, Javelin. Before the HIMAR. Okay, gotcha. The HIMAR is more advanced than the... I don't know. Anyway. Anyway, so I'm a pacifist. I don't really know all these missile things, but the Javelin, the, the sword, that's their version, and... We think of these as relics because to us they are because we can kill at distance because just you know people are gonna find ways to kill people. This is what we do, um, which is sad. But the, there's a modern day equivalent of these things. Yes. And so I read this book and it was hugely controversial among evangelicals. Like Rob Bell was the guy. Like every youth minister was watching the Numa video series where Rob Bell talked about one Greek word for 20 minutes mm-hmm. and did it in like a breathy, weird way. And <laughs> I like him. We have that video series on as the a, show. I like him church. as a theologian. And we watched some of the video series when I was a youth pastor way back in the day. But like he was like Mr. Superstar in evangelical circles. And then he wrote this book. And the book is called Love Wins. Mm-hmm. I read it. You did? Okay, good. Yeah. And in it, he does this thing that I don't let myself do. Which is? To picture heaven. Mm. Now, I'm fine reading other people's pictures of heaven. And he comes out and, and just immediately says, I don't know this. I haven't been. This is all based on what I interpret scripture as mean. He's very open about it. Mm-hmm. It still pissed off the um, people in my denomination. The who's who. I'm trying to be careful how I say this. Yeah. Uh, it, it pissed off the people that get power from being pissed off, really. Mm. Um, and But he cast this image of heaven. And one of the things that he talked about is how in heaven, it may be that you get to continue doing the things that you're passionate about doing on earth. Hmm. And he also said that there would be no need for 
guns, for instance. And I said, wait a second, Rob. But I like hunting. What about those of us who like using guns? And not on Earth, because it's the New Jerusalem, really. It's like the New Earth. Mm-hmm. Um, what about those of us who, on this side of heaven, like and are passionate about using guns for nonviolent, well, non-human, non-human violent purposes, mm-hmm. be it hunting, target shooting, or one one of the things that I like most about them is like tinkering with them, like the mechanical nature of them. Mm. Um, I've only got one gun that's not modified, and that's because I paid too much to modify it. Um, I would feel bad if I boogered it up, but I'll eventually get there, and I'll do something to it. All that said, um, there, there's nuance, okay? Mm-hmm. I get what he's saying, but what is what is this image that Isaiah is casting, which I use Rob Bell to kind of amplify, what does it look like to you? Because we can read his vision, but certainly you have one of your own. Yeah, uh, well... So the debate about guns, I think, in, in the United States is a really important one to look at uh, because, you know, I think for the most part, the debate about whether we should have guns or not um, is really centered around what we do with them to yeah. other humans yeah. and to ourselves. And the know, problem is as long as suicide, they exist, homicide, mass someone's going to use them for bad purposes. Yeah, Exactly. I read recently a pretty pessimistic article that said that the end of the gun control debate has already come and gone, and that was Sandy Hook. Once we decided that we were okay as a nation accepting the possibility that someone could shoot a whole bunch of kids, mm-hmm. and, first graders, and and not do anything in far as far as taking guns away from, or or giving up. Let's use that language. Giving up the weapons that we have that can cause this kind of violence. Then the debate was over. Yeah, and and I, I'm actually. I'm not. I'm not okay with that. With the with the status quo. The, the fatalism of that article. Yeah, yeah. because um, because I really want to hope for a vision of where, and I don't think this is like out of left field or anything, where like kids don't need to be worried about getting shot up in a school. Yeah. Uh, but that's the situation we're in right now. And, um, and, and perhaps that has a lot to, you know, there's, there's, studies now saying about you know children and mental health and 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 that's one of them that that kids don't feel safe yeah and what will it take for us to be like these nations who are willing to um, hammer our swords into plowshares Uh, there is an organization that is doing that i think it's called plowshares actually that is is doing gun buybacks and and so far they've only really gained traction in um, in urban centers where there's been a lot of gang violence, mm-hmm. where people are willing to um, give back or sell back guns that they have, and this organization, I mean, this is a, this is a, it's not a cost-effective thing, but it's a, it's a statement. They're actually melting these guns down and building garden tools with them. Well, I. It may not be a cost-effective thing. You're never going to get out what you put in, but it's, they might can recover some, yeah, and use that to go towards the purchase of more. So. Yeah, but I see where your mind is. So the 
Yeah, so we still need to reckon with, are we ready to relinquish the control that we believe that we have from weapons that are purchased for self-defense or for uh, protection against uh, government assault or something like that, where we or feel like we have to have the same kind of weaponry as the federal government so we can defend ourselves in case they try to take away Wh- our Which rights. is a, a silly myth, because... I would bring your attention back to look what we're sending Ukraine. Yeah, you don't think we got that here? How? <laughs> yeah, how, howitzer artillery. Yeah, pieces you think your house is going to hold up against that? Twenty mile. I mean, nobody's trying to buy a howitzer in the United States that I know. I mean, I've, don't sure put it past them. Yeah. There's somebody that's trying to buy a howitzer yeah. or a high Mars or a javelin system. Anyway, we we jump to this, and I do want to come back to it. But the intervening passages of scripture talk about Jerusalem being lifted up mm-hmm. and the nations streaming to it. And it doesn't mean levitating. No. It, it means... Uh, Some translations have gone so far as to say that the mountain is actually not going to be lifted up, but it will have a place of prominence. Yeah, it's, it's like uh, in status. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the question that I ask my congregation and that I want to put to you is if we were to uh, imagine that the, that that the church is the gift that God gives to the world through Christ's life, crucifixion, death, resurrection, as a foretaste of the kingdom. What what does the church look like that's a place that people actually want to stream to? What is the wisdom and the knowledge and the justice that that we are embodying that actually... uh, causes people to desire to come and learn are you you're asking in the present tense yes but do you need to be asking in the potential future, future? yeah like like what does it need to be i think because i think if definitely. you look at statistics right now it's not people aren't coming to church yeah yeah so but there's something that it says about the new jerusalem that or, or Jerusalem, Zion. Well, let me correct myself. It's not here. It's not in the Western Hemisphere. This is what the peoples, I think Gentiles, the nations, say. And this is a quote. Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. So what they're seeking is not church. They're seeking the wisdom of God. Of God, yes. That is being, I guess... Uh, provided for or or transmuted transmitted by the temple the house of the god of Jacob but if you listen to what they're saying in a more literal sense it's not that some preacher is teaching them mm-hmm. it's it's a, what they're craving and what brings them streaming to Zion which I think is metaphorical is the connection with the actual source, mm-hmm. the connection with God. Yeah. And I think that in in you reading that verse, we may have, have illustrated or at least highlighted the problem in the church and why all these visions that we have for what the church can be and what life can be are in days to come and not now. It's because there seems to be in every church that you go to, even though we don't mean to, some division, this sense that we must have a mediator. Mm. 
and there's no direct access. And I'm a, I'm a Baptist. I believe in the priesthood of the believer. But even in the Baptist tradition, it's like, well, I don't have direct access to God, so I'll ask the preacher mm. who does. Mm-hmm. And we, we, you can attest to this, we have no more direct access to God than any other human being. That's true. And so I think that humanity does, whether we know it or not, or can recognize it or not, still crave connection with God. That's why we, ha- we have and are enjoying another one today, these back to nature kind of movements mm-hmm. uh, where we want to immerse ourselves in God's creation. We may not recognize it as God, but it's there. Right. And I, I think there's people who are, are spiritual but not religious, as they yeah. say, looking for that connection, exactly. longing for it. And that's what is described as people are streaming to Zion. It's not so they can learn the customs. Mm-hmm. It's not so they can do the rituals. It's not so they can see the pretty buildings. Hmm. It's so that they can learn from the God of Jacob. Yeah. And I think Isaiah puts this, puts all of this together in a way that uh, challenges us. Mm-hmm. Because the nations who stream to the house of Zion, to the house of, ja- to the, house of the God of Jacob, they are, they are willing to lay down their weapons. Mm-hmm. Because the, what they what they long for, what they believe or see to be coming from Jerusalem, from the house of the God of Jacob, is something that is so valuable that they're willing to count all of the other, um, I'll say, idols that they have lifted up as forms of protection as as trash, mm-hmm. as refuse. They're will, they, once, once they have received that knowledge, once they're walking in the Lord's ways, there's no longer this need for uh, self-defense or for preparing for a time of war. And we're definitely not there yet. No. We, we definitely don't trust God to that extent yet. And I don't know that we ever have. So it's not like we've just fallen away. I think about after we talked about this on our last program, the Edict of Milan, the church gets an army. Martin Luther in the Protestant Reformation says, okay, we're going to do it different and better hmm. until the Lutherans get big enough in Germany that he has an army. And okay, we're not going to do it different and better anymore. Then you, you know, then you have to, yeah, then, then all of a sudden you're another church state kind of entity. Yeah, and again. so what what you do is you you take this ideal and you say, well we're going to you know, when we do it this time, we're going to make God the central focus and we won't need you know, armies and violence and and this. But when you get powerful enough, you say, okay, well, let's you know, for God, let's get an army together and go force those Turks to be Christians now. Mm, you know, mm-hmm. or or whatever the crusades, whatever group is not us. Yeah, yeah, it's it's uh, it's depressing. I I think when you look at Christian history to see that we make this mistake over and over and over and over. It's um, it is our human nature. We should be able to see it, acknowledge it, and uh, dismiss it, and 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 move past it. But we somehow continue to delude ourselves that the answer to bringing about what God wants is for us to use force. And get what we want. 
Yeah. Yeah. So if if human nature is a huge part of the problem, if not the problem, how do we ever get to the days to come hmm. if it involves humanity? Well, I think that's where the Messiah comes in. Yeah. Because I, I think, you know, my Christology, if you will, my theory of Christ, my understanding of who Christ is, is that Jesus came to provide us with an example of how to be human mm -hmm. that we had not previously understood or attempted. And he does so nonviolently. He, he does so by, by laying his life down mm -hmm. and not compromising when it comes to loving his enemies. He's not willing to say, I love you, but in the, for the sake of self-defense, I'm going to make sure that you don't kill me because I will, you know, pony up a equal and an opposite threat. Mm -hmm. But that's what we do as human beings. So we haven't we we haven't come close to the kingdom of God yet because we haven't learned the lesson that Christ was trying to teach, in my opinion. We haven't learned how to be human the way God believes we can be. So in my very low Christology, which yours was surprised me with how low yours is. So and <laughs> I, I like a low Christology. I don't hear it much, but in my very low Christology, which is the it's not saying I don't like Jesus. It's saying I think Jesus is more human than we give him credit for. Hmm. Um, I, I, I see a Jesus that, unlike the rest of us, was, and I think this is what you described, was able to overcome his human nature. And in a low Christology, we don't deny that he had it. Hmm. Um, a high Christology says, well, of course he could. He was mostly God, not human. Um, but a low Christology says he was mostly, if not all, human mm -hmm. and was able to serve God so well right. that that human nature didn't factor in or was just suppressed. And I think I would nuance it a little bit to say that he's able to overcome the human nature that we thought was default. Yes. By demonstrating a human nature that is able to rise above the petty arguments that that and disagreements that eventually collapse into manifest violence. So in in Isaiah's world he's saying in in days to come we can have this. Hmm. And Jesus shows up and without saying it sometimes saying it but f mostly without saying it shows us the days have come we can live like this you're capable of yes this. you and are. that's the beauty of a low christology because if jesus is mostly human then or at least half and half very human 100 <laughs> percent. or if you're human. like me 100 percent human 100 church member God. church members earmuffs don't listen to this if you're like me and think pretty much all human hmm. well I mean, and he can do it that's still creedal not the well, yeah, creedal but 100 well, percent human Hundred percent, God, and He can do it. Yeah, then any of us can. Right, and that's the beauty of it. Yeah. That's the beauty of a God in human form. Mm -hmm. And and so there is hope. Yes, even though it does seem hopeless. It and if you really think about it, if Christ's commission, great commission, to go and make disciples of all nations, mm -hmm. if we were to take that seriously, 
And if we were to become the kind of disciples that model our lives as closely as possible to the way that Christ lived, even willing to give up our own lives rather than hating our enemies, mm-hmm. right? The world would change in incredible ways. I think a, another way of saying that, just to make it simple and easy to remember, is maybe when we make decisions, we should ask ourselves, maybe even out loud, what's more important in this decision, being right or being Christ-like? Hmm. Yeah. Because we, we often seek the vindication and and just proving that we're smarter than and better than and whoever. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it might be better. It sucks at times. And I've had to swallow my words and let people quote unquote get, get one over on me before to do this. But sometimes it's probably better to be perceived wrong, perceived stupid, perceived weak. Mm. I mean, Paul said this, all things to all people. Yeah. So that we can be like Christ. Because that's what being a Christian means, like Christ, in the way of Christ. And so as we move t- back towards this, this passage about swords into plowshares, there's a really important word that comes in between. He says, he shall judge between the nations and shall arbitrate for many peoples. And I think so often, regarding what you just said about the choice between being right and being Christ-like, we assume that judgment is about deciding between right and wrong. Yeah. But from Genesis, we are aware, or ought to be aware, that humans are very bad at that decision. Terrible. There's another way of interpreting that word judgment, though. Mm -hmm. That's about decision-making. And I think what is hopeful about the judgment that comes from Zion it, and that we ourselves as humans and followers of Christ can inherit and can practice is that we take on Christ's judgment, Christ's decision making, Christ's ability to decide when it is better for me to do what is good for the kingdom of God than for myself and mm-hmm. my own desires and needs and my own family's protection and what and, and that's a hard that's a hard choice to make. Those it are is. hard decisions to make. But the hope that I see in this passage is that by modeling that, Christ gives us an opportunity to adopt a new way of making decisions. And that that kind of judgment as opposed to deciding whether I'm right or wrong or whether you're right or you're wrong, uh, can free us, Mm -hmm. can free us to be followers and can free us to actually be servants of this new kingdom where the nations will long to, to, to find wisdom. You said what it's freeing us to become, and I think that should be the focus, but what is it freeing us from? I think one of the thing is having to make these decisions. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you're going to have decisions in life, but if we turn our decision-making over to God, which is what we tell people we're doing Mm -hmm. when we become Christians, then we don't have have to be the ones that necessarily um, come up with what is right and what is wrong. Right. Because we've yielded that to God. And, and, And in yielding that to God, we often fall prey to this, this thought that I've made myself weak. Mm. And if I've made myself weak, I've made myself vulnerable. 
And those are two things that we do not ever want to be, but they are precisely what we are often called to be. If for no other reason, just by living the example Christ lived. And, and looking at Christ, I mean, he, he embodied vulnerability. Mm-hmm. And yet, because of and through his vulnerability, he gained power. He was, he was uh, elevated. Um, the ascension is sometimes portrayed not just as him going up to heaven, but his, his ascending to power, ascending mm-hmm. to the power of the throne of God. Seated at the right hand of God, yes. Exactly. And, and without Christ, I think it'd be very difficult for humans to kind of conceive of this idea that through vulnerability and through laying our lives down, and giving that decision-making authority back to God, that we would we we would be powerful in any in any human definition of that. And yet, that is exactly the power that Christ has, and the reason that we're still talking about Him today. Yeah, and so staying power mm-hmm. is one thing, but I think there's true strength in that mm-hmm. because uh, my dad, we were, I started playing football, and. Uh, like little kid football and people would run their mouths and I'd want to run my mouth back. And in one of very few, no offense, dead dad, but very few wise things that he ever told me. Mm-hmm. He said, son, just let your hitting do your talking. Now I, I know that's violent. Yes, but it's football, <laughs> right? Yeah. The, the point is don't say it, do it. Yeah. And, the real strength that Christ shows is what he did. Mm -hmm. He said a lot of great things, but even in his vulnerability, he showed true strength because look what he got done Mm -hmm. and truly changed the world because he's able to do because he followed the will of the father. He didn't make it about him. I mean, I guess to some extent he did, but um, didn't make it about what he could gain. Yeah. And did all the things that, in human standards, make you look weak um, and that we try to avoid. And through that found strength. The, the sad irony of it is that we actually are weak. Yeah. <laughs> the reality is that we are weak and we are vulnerable. And we try to cover that up with the, with the ways that we build walls and, and, and protections for ourselves and mm-hmm. try to cultivate our own security and end up making that our idol. So it's not about doing things that make us look weak. The Christian practice is about acknowledging that we are weak, yeah. acknowledging that we're vulnerable, and being willing to broadcast that and say, yes, this is the situation I'm in, and also the situation you're in. And I think really part of the reason why the nations will stream to Zion is because of that authenticity and acknowledging that the, the idols that we've pursued, the, the, the violence and the power that we've built up and accumulated to try to protect ourselves from others, it, it isn't effective. It doesn't accomplish what we want it to. When we build up arms to protect ourselves, we end up, we end up inviting more death and violence on ourselves. So uh, two things. First, love where you're going with this. And I have never thought about it like that before, that the first step we have if we're going to get to where in the days to come leads us is admitting our weakness. Mm. That admission 
makes us want to turn to our source of strength, God. Therefore, we strain to Zion. The, the thing you just said about like wanting to build up arms and then being a slave to them or whatever, think about Jonestown. This mm. is before either one, one of us was born. But the People's Temple, uh, Jim Jones founds this new religious movement, and they moved to Guyana. Guyana. Mm-hmm. They moved to South America. And when they're down there, they say, well, we need guns for our protection because mm-hmm. we're in a jungle and there's people that aren't going to like us around. So we need guns for our protection. And then people look around and they think, okay, if we need the guns for our protection, why are they pointed inside the walls? Mm. Um, and so a lot of times we we find ourselves in that situation where we build it's not always guns it could be financial it could be um the people we surround ourselves with we build up these defenses sometimes status symbols and we end up being slaves to it mm-hmm. or um can't maintain it yeah or if it's the people we surround ourselves with we surround ourselves with people that think we're awesome as long as we're useful to them and as soon as we're not, they turn on us. Things like this happen all the time. Um, and so no matter what the object is, we, in, our, in our quest for self-sufficiency and strength, we weaken ourselves. Yeah. We're going to go long on this one because i got two stories, and I want to ask you which one you want me to talk okay, about. I thought we were about done, but that's cool. Okay. You want me to talk about Samurais, or you want, to, you want me to talk about my dad? Both if we can. Okay. Samurais first? Sure. Okay, so it, samurais are a, a, a warrior of Japan, mm-hmm. and I'm not sure exactly when this happened. We'll have to look it up. But there, there was a time in Japan when the, the, the country was modernizing, and they said, we don't need samurais anymore. But this was like a legacy thing. Like mm-hmm. if, you're, if your grandfather was a samurai, you inherited the samurai sword, and, and you became a samurai. Like, like being a mason. Yeah, like being a mason, but they are, they are sort of mercenaries in a way too, right? Yeah. And there was a time when the government said, this is actually something that we need to leave in the past. And so they uh, required people to hand over their samurai swords. Uh-huh. And at that time, there were people who pushed back against it. And By the they, way, these are priceless objects that have been in the family for centuries. Yes. Go ahead. And there were people who went on drunken rampages and slaughtered people with these swords who could, that, that are rated based on how many bodies they could cut through in a single swing. I yeah. mean, it's like between one and seven. You know, so these are incredibly powerful weapons at that time. And the, and the country as a whole decided, we need to leave this behind us. We need to give these up in order to be the people we want to be. And... We're facing a similar decision point in, in the United States, or maybe we'll, we'll, we, we continue to come back around to it, to saying, is, are the, is the people that we want to be achievable given the weapons that we cling to? Mm-hmm. I'm not going to answer that for everyone right now, but I think we're going to have to ask that question just like Japan did. Uh, now let me talk about my dad. Please do. So my dad is a lover of history and travel. Time out. I have met Emily's dad. I've never met your dad. Okay, go ahead. Okay. Alan Constantian uh, served in the military as a medical officer in the Air Force. 
he took me to New York when I was a kid, and we went around. We saw the sights. We went up to the uh, Empire State Building. We went out to Ellis Island, Statue of Liberty. But one thing really stuck out to me from that trip. He took me to the UN Building, the United Nations Building, and this. My dad studied political science in college. He studied and majored in Greek, not Greek, German and Russian. Because at the time, we were in the Cold War, and he was thinking, these languages are going to help us get ourselves out of this. Mm-hmm. But I see that the, the problems that we face are problems of imagination. Isaiah is providing us with a, a scriptural imagination of what the days to come could look like. And it involves beating our swords into plowshares. So in the kind of garden area around the UN, there is a statue that was a gift from the Soviet Union to the United Nations. And it's in classic Russian style, a big burly man with a giant hammer swinging it. He's swinging it at a sword that is becoming a plow. Is it a plow or is it a sickle? I don't know. I don't remember. I'm only asking because of the Soviet Union flag. No, no, no. It's not a sickle. It's okay. a, It's being. It's clearly a reference to this scripture. Okay. And to me, I think looking back on that, what's so impressive about that? My dad wanted me to see that where German and Russian and English had failed to achieve an imagination for the future, Christians from Russia and the United States were able to see the statue and say, yes. That's what we want. That's what we want. We want to go, and, and that imagination for what's possible came from this scripture. That, that even though we haven't figured out how to achieve peace for ourselves, we believe that it's possible if we have the right imagination. And that is the power of an in days to come. Because mm-hmm. it gives us hope. Yeah. And until... Until we get there, we can always say that we're on our way somewhere. Yeah. Um, All right, for Pastor Pollock, I'm Court Green. And I'm Peter Constantian. Peace.